Listen to this reading from the gospel, Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 25. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Tell him, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest! Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. In the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt this, does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. This is God's word spoken for us, his people. Let me pray. Lord, we do ask that as we turn our attention toward this this key week in history, that as we look at these events, you would let us see what your word teaches about their importance, their significance, about the reality of who we are and who Jesus is. Jesus, our Savior, our arriving King, our Messiah. Lord, let Jesus have authority and power and dominion over our lives. Lord, we come as those who need your word, even, even those of us who gather here with doubts, that you could even speak to us, that your word has any power. Lord, I pray that you would show your power today. 
by transforming hearts, moving us from the position of, of those who doubt to the position of those who believe your word and trust in Jesus as our Savior. And so, Father in heaven, we come rejoicing in the gospel, praying in the name of Jesus. Amen. The letter was secretly delivered to every allied soldier and sailor. It was delivered on June 5th, 1944. That's the eve of D-Day. That day in which the allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy, that point of no return. The letter was from the supreme commander of the allied expeditionary force, General Dwight Eisenhower. Every Allied soldier and sailor was given a copy. It read in part, Soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers-in-arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and bring security to yourselves in a free world. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Let us all beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. D-Day, as you know, was a massive invasion, if successful, and that if to many of us of generations who didn't live through that period is lost in the books of history, for we know that the outcome, but as that letter was written, the outcome was less than secure. If successful, this invasion would lead to victory. But at this point, there would be no turning back. That's the moment in the gospel at which we stand. That eve of D-Day. That invasion is about to come, and and it's what we read here in Mark chapter 11. The, The opening 10 chapters of this gospel have been leading us up to this moment when Jesus himself will invade Jerusalem to destroy the powers of sin and death. But Jesus himself has come knowing he will die, knowing what it will cost. Jesus has come willing to give himself for us. And so so let's look at at Jesus' actions here in this triumphal entry and Jesus' ministry then in the temple. We, we, We see here the king's arrival. Jesus is is there on the outskirts of Jerusalem, just probably up over the crest of the the Mount of Olives there to the east of the city. Jerusalem is the the political and religious center of the people of Israel. This is their capital city, but it's the place where the temple in Jesus' time stood. This is the place of God's holy sanctuary, where the priests minister before the Lord bringing sacrifices. And so Jesus, like the other religious Jews of his day, comes to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. But Jesus, who who up to this point in the gospel has done much of his ministry, while very public, has also had this sort of secrecy built around his gospel. 
When, he, when he's outside of, of Galilee, he often tells people when they, when they come to faith in him, just, just keep this quiet for now. But suddenly now, here in the, the opening words of Mark chapter 11, Jesus makes his, public, his ministry known publicly. He's about to, to put on a big show, a spectacle. It's, it's designed to draw attention. It seems like it's planned ahead of time, too, that, that Jesus is going to send his disciples into the next village over to, to get the, the donkey. Jesus is, is then going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, which seems to us, Perhaps an unusual public display, a public spectacle. If we wanted a, a conquering king, we'd want him to drive his, his chariots, his war horses, to show us wh- what he's coming to do. He's coming to, to wage war. But Jesus purposefully chooses an image that, that the people then would have understood. The image of the king coming, riding on a donkey. It's, it's purposefully drawn from the, the words of Zechariah one of the last of the Old Testament prophets, who tells the city of Jerusalem, Rejoice greatly! Shout, daughter of Jerusalem! See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation. This is, this is Zechariah's anticipation. Look for the king. You'll know when he arrives because he will come gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so Jesus is purposefully picking up this messianic expectation, this expectation that God would send his king in this way. It's an unusual image. Yes, there are, there are some instances of, of donkeys being used to, to ride upon in, in the, the Old Testament. But it's, it's purposefully designed to publicly declare that Jesus is the anticipated, expected Messiah. And the crowds, they seem to understand. The disciples take their coats, their cloaks, and they, they lay them over this donkey, a donkey which has never been used before. Again, perhaps a, an imagery of, of, one, of an animal that has been set aside for special purposes. The Lord needs it, is what the disciples tell the owner, those in the street wondering why this, this donkey would be taken. And then the people take off their outer garments as Jesus approaches Jerusalem. They, they lay them there in the dust. They, they, they gather branches from the fields and they lay them in front of Jesus. It's, it's a bizarre scene. It's, it's an extravagant and unusual scene, but it's, the people are recognizing even the donkey on which he rides shouldn't be walking through the dust. They, they roll out the red carpet, we might say, for this king who comes. And then look, look back at the text with me. What did the, what did the people say? They pick up the Old Testament language, Hosanna, Hosanna, which, which may be just a, a cry of, of, of praise to God, but, but it originally would have, would have been a prayer. Hosanna, God, save us. Now it's being shouted as an exclamation, God himself saves us. They, they, they cry with the, the language of the Psalms, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The crowds are beginning to see, they, they understand what's taking place. The Messiah has arrived. The King has come. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Now that one's not a direct quote from an Old, Old Testament psalm, but it, but it captures that theme, that expectation that David's royal son, David, the great king of the Old Testament people of God, his son is now here. Just in the, the verses before this, we, we met Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus, the blind man begging alongside the road who cried out to Jesus and called him son of David, 
have mercy on me. When the crowds try and keep this man quiet, he won't. He shouts, son of David, have mercy on me. And now the crowds here at Jerusalem outside the city begin to understand who this Jesus is. He is the one who will bring the coming kingdom of David. He is David's own son. And so they shout, Hosanna in the highest. This is that moment of great joy, that pivotal moment. The king has come. And notice how the city responds in eager anticipation of the king's arrival. What do we read? Look at verse 11 with me. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. What? We have been waiting centuries for the arrival of the king. The crowds are outside the city declaring the king has come. And what do we, the people of Jerusalem, do? Ignore him. I mean, the contrast between the crowds, who who perhaps were the crowds that traveled with him down from Galilee, announcing the, the Galilean prophet, Jesus of Nazareth, is here. He is the Messiah. The crowds seem to understand it, but the religious leaders the people of Jerusalem, the pilgrims from other parts of the world, they don't receive the king when he arrives. Such as Jesus walks into the temple courts, it's it's almost as if he is here, just a a tourist in the city, just another one of the, the many who have come up to the city for Passover. He goes into the temple, his temple. This is his city. He is David's royal son. He is the righteous high priest. And yet, because it was already late, he goes back out of the city. See, you and I might, when we read this story, see ourselves among the throngs of people on the outskirts of the city tearing down the palm branches, bringing the the branches and, and, and grasses from the fields, throwing our cloaks in front of Jesus, praising God, Hosanna in the highest. Yet is that how we really respond? Are we, we more like the people in the city? See, we're okay if the king comes, but he has to come on our terms. And this Jesus doesn't look much like a king. This itinerant preacher poor, weary from travel, this one who who claims for himself the mantle of Messiah, acting out the prophecies of Zechariah, this one is the king? So how do you respond when when Jesus enters, when you're confronted with him? I mean, for many of us, this this message, the story of Jesus, even even these words which are are so frequently read annually in our, our church calendar as we remember Palm Sunday, The words can be so familiar to us, but do you see the shock of what really is taking place? What should have been the response of the people of Jerusalem? They should have joined in with the crowds outside the city, giving praise to God. Finally, the promised Messiah is here. Our King has come. And so the King's arrival is ignored. And we see the next day then the king's judgment. For, for as, as Mark sets up the story, it's, it's surprising. The whole gospel has been leading us to this moment. We've been going toward Jerusalem, waiting to arrive. And then here in chapter 11, Jesus actually comes in and out of the city three times. 
He arrives three times because people don't notice, really, the first time. Despite the big public display outside the city, people largely in the city ignore it. And so we read then in verse 12 of this bizarre, uh, this bizarre scene with a, with a fig tree. Jesus, who's hungry the next morning, leaving Bethany, coming back to Jerusalem. And this would have been a, a common practice for, for pilgrims to, to come up to the city. The city is not big enough to hold all of the pilgrims who would come, so you would go back and, and stay overnight out in the villages. But Jesus is hungry, and so we, we read in verse 13, seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. So, Jesus finds a fig tree, out of season, without any figs on it. And Mark is really clear here. He wants to make sure that, that if you didn't grow up in a part of the world where you knew the pattern of seasons, wait, wait, what, what time of year is Passover and when do figs come? When, if you're not looking at your calendar to figure out this isn't the time when figs should be on the tree, Mark wants to make sure we understand it. This is not the season for figs. So that then verse 14 now sounds really bizarre. Look there. Jesus, first he's speaking to a tree. And he says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Now this is a miracle. I mean, what's about to take place is, is set up for us as a miracle. And yet, doesn't it feel a little bit strange? Like, some of the miracles make perfect sense. Bartimaeus cries out for mercy and asks to receive sight, and Jesus gives him sight. And so we can rejoice in the the miracle that takes place there. Here, Jesus comes to a tree that shouldn't have fruit on it and says, may you be cursed and never bear fruit again. What's he doing? Is Is he just hangry? He's cranky here in the morning. He's, he's hungry and angry. He's hangry. You know, he just needs somebody to get this man a Snickers. No, I, I really think that, that verse, verse 13 there, when Mark makes clear, this isn't the season for figs. This isn't just Jesus' frustration with this, with this fig tree. And actually, because Mark then, he, he wants us to understand what's about to take place is symbolic. Jesus is doing this on purpose so that the disciples will draw a lesson not about horticulture and fig trees, but will draw a lesson about what's taking place around them. Because notice in how, how Mark interweaves the story of the fig tree with the, the ministry of Jesus in the temple. In, in the Gospel of, of Matthew, both of these stories are there, but they're set kind of one right after the other. So that you could take them as separate stories. Mark wants us to see No, no, to interpret them rightly, you have to actually see these stories connected. The cursing of the fig tree is symbolic of what Jesus is about to do in the temple. Because a a fig tree that's that's in leaf, out of season, so that's unusual, that it has leaves on it, it, is making a promise it cannot keep. Because a fig tree cannot bear fruit at this time of, of year in this way. And so, so it's a false promise that it has leaves on the tree. Now Jesus is about to walk down into the temple and perform another symbolic action. This chapter is, is filled with these prophetic actions. Jesus is the Messiah who rides on the donkey coming into Jerusalem. Jesus is the, the Messiah who can, who can declare judgment against, not just a fig tree, but against the temple. Because the temple 
for all of its religious activity, for as busy as it seems, looks like it has leaves on it. But for as busy as it seems, there is no fruit in the temple. They're going through the motions, but it's a facade. And and Mark wants to make sure that we tie these two stories together so that the next morning they'll come back to the tree and Peter will figure it out. Oh, look, the tree that you cursed has, has not just withered, it, it, it has withered all the way down to the roots. It's dead and will never bear fruit again. All they're going to do is cut that down and throw that into the fire. Because the very next thing Jesus does is, is he reaches Jerusalem. He goes into the temple area. And here we see Jesus overflow with holy zeal, with a righteous anger. He looks around at the temple and realizes this is not the purpose for my temple. He's there in the outer courts, the courts of the Gentiles, the place where the nations could gather. Beyond that, only Jews could go. But here, what's taking place, it's, it's buying and selling. Perhaps much of it necessary work to, for the temple to take place. It's, it's hard to travel in the ancient world. It would be much easier to show up at Jerusalem and there buy the sacrifices that you need. And so the merchants are providing a a service for the the pilgrims coming into the city. But but what have they done? They have crowded out the, the court of the Gentiles. They've pushed the nations away from God. This is as close as the nations can get to God's holy presence there in the temple. And so what does Jesus do? He he again, very publicly. He's no longer ministering and serving in secret. He's no longer on the outskirts. He's no longer in Galilee. He is here at the heart, the heartbeat of the nation, in the temple course. He throws over tables. He knocks away the money changers. He, the other Gospels tells us he, he grabs a whip and begins to, to drive people out of the temple. But again, it's a symbolic action because what are they going to do when Jesus leaves town again tonight? They're going to set their tables back up. They're going to sell their their wares again tomorrow. Again, it's a symbolic action, the symbolic action of, of riding into the city as the, as the promised Messiah, the symbolic action of cursing a fig tree, showing them that, that, to, that to have leaves but no fruit, that's what's happening here at the temple. And so Jesus teaches the people what the temple is meant to be. Jesus in cleansing the temple, that's the role again of the Messiah, the true king, the high priest, Jesus himself. Look at verse 17, what he teaches the people. He says, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Those are phrases that would have immediately made sense to them. You and I might, might need to jump to the, the footnotes at the bottom of our page to realize, again, these are, these are prophecies. Words announced by the prophets. They have made this this temple a den of robbers. That's in in Jeremiah's prophecy, Jeremiah chapter 7, where Jeremiah wants the people to know, do not presume that because you live next to the temple that God will not bring judgment upon you. The armies of the king of Babylon stand outside of the city and you will not withstand them unless you turn to God and repent. Just being next to the temple is not enough. You are people who have made God's temple a den of robbers of robbers, Jesus tells them. Again, words of judgment, similar to the, the words spoken to the, to the fig tree. It's a, it's a curse, a covenant curse upon God's people. And he turns back then to, to Isaiah chapter 56 with this quotation, my house, my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. 
Isaiah is looking forward in the, in the future to the, the glorious purpose for which the temple was built. Why is it here? So that in the future, every nation will have access to God. Every, every person on earth could come here to bring sacrifice, to, to find salvation here at the temple. What have you done? Jesus says to the people, you have ignored the purposes of this temple. You've ignored the promises for which it was built, that God is bringing the nations here, and you have turned it into a den of robbers. And so we see the response. It's the anticipated response from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the religious leaders, those that have authority here. The chief priests under the, under the authority of the high priest are responsible for this temple. And so when they see this, this scene of this peasant preacher who comes in and is going to tell them what to do, who's caused this, this damage throughout their temple, who's interrupted their commerce, who claims an authority over them, they decide we will look for a way to kill him. Now, this isn't a surprise to us because every time religious authorities interact with Jesus, it's from all the way back in chapter 3 of Mark's gospel. When they, when they hear from Jesus something they don't like, this is their plan. We need to get rid of him. He needs to die. But in, in their plot, you and I hear the gospel. Jesus has told his disciples repeatedly in this gospel, we are going to Jerusalem where I will be handed over. I will be beaten and tortured and spit upon and I will give my life. I will be killed in Jerusalem. This plot is not a surprise to Jesus. So Jesus, the next morning, leaving the temple again, he, he, they, they pass the, the fig tree. Peter is, is figuring it out that the, the curse has fallen upon this fig tree, that, that perhaps there's something to this fig tree's curse in yesterday's temple cleansing. And so Jesus teaches his disciples, look at verse 22. What's the response that Jesus expects? Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Jesus is, is calling the, his disciples to have faith in God, what God is doing. He uses this, this proverbial expression because throwing a mountain into the heart of the sea is as meaningful an action as cursing a fig tree. I mean, it's, it's symbolic. I mean, Jesus, if, if you're walking around thinking, I have not moved any mountains in my life by prayer. I must be a failure as a Christian. That's, that's not what Jesus is saying here. Yes, he's calling us to have that kind of enormous faith recognizing that, that for, what, uh, for us what would be impossible is not impossible with God. All things are possible with God. That's been, that's been our teaching in this section of the gospel. Jesus is calling us to have that kind of faith in God, that the God who brings about judgment is the God who can act on our behalf. And, and so actually, in some sense, it's a, it's a little bit of a frightening image. That the God who can, who can curse a fig tree, the God who, God who can bring judgment against the temple, God who can scoop a mountain and toss it into the sea, that's the God before whom you stand. 
in judgment. And that's why Jesus will, will tell his disciples in verse 25 that, that, that we, when we're praying, need to, need to be willing to forgive others so that our Father in heaven may forgive us. I mean, forgiveness seems to be disconnected from what's, what's been taking place until we remember that all of Jesus' actions here have been actions of judgment. He's the king who arrives in Jerusalem and the city ignores him. He's the king who, who pronounces a curse upon the fig tree, symbolic of the curse that falls upon people who walk through the patterns of religion without any real faith. And Jesus is the king who brings judgment upon Jerusalem. And so we're desperate when we stand before the God who can toss mountains around. God who can bring judgment on us. Jesus who with a word withers a fig tree. We stand before this, this God as king. He is the one who claims authority over us. And so, so when you come to Jesus, do you see his power? Do you see his authority? Do you see what he's telling us? That nothing is impossible with God. For you, it's impossible. The task which is before you can't be done. You cannot save yourselves. We, we read it already in our, our confession of faith. That God has saved us not because of our righteousness, not because of anything good we've done, but because of his mercy, his forgiveness. And so Jesus tells us in verse 24, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Come to God with, with a bold confidence that the judge of all the earth is the judge who, who loves you, who cares for you, who, who has taken our punishment upon himself. See, Mark wants us to, he wants us to understand how were we meant to respond to the arrival of Jesus. Well, we see a glimpse in the crowds. They, they give praise to Jesus. But here he, he presses it deeper into the disciples' hearts. Have faith in Jesus. God. God is at work here. Prayer can be a, a measure of your relationship with God. And Jesus is, is turning back to this theme of prayer, which again seems disconnected until we remember that quote from, from Isaiah. What is the temple meant to be? A place of prayer, a place where we connect with God. I mean, if I were going to measure your relationship with God, your intimacy with God based on prayer, how close would you be to God? If, if prayer is here a measurement, the boldness with which we come to God, the, 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 the urgency with which we come to God. I mean, many of us, we're, we're more like the people of the city. We're going through the busyness of our lives. Yes, we're, we're getting things done that need to get done. We're, we're, we're buying and we're selling, but we're not, we're not with God in prayer. See, Jesus is offering an invitation to his disciples here at this moment of judgment this moment in which God is bringing judgment, covenant judgment against Israel, against the temple, against the religious leaders. Turn and put your trust in Jesus. See, Jesus enters as the messianic king. He is the one who comes as the son of David. He is the one who comes riding the donkey. He is the hero, gaining victory. But, but he comes in order to give his life as a ransom. See, Jesus himself will take the judgment, the punishment upon him, himself. He'll pay the penalty for the sins of his people. Jesus comes to, to purify the temple. He is the perfect sacrifice. He is the true high priest. Jesus comes offering forgiveness to all who believe. Forgiveness that comes through his own death. Jesus is the king who extends hope 
not just to Israel, but to all nations. And so you listen to the words of Jesus. Will you respond with faith? Have faith in God, Jesus answered them. Will you turn and will you trust the royal Messiah, the king who has arrived? Eisenhower's letter, distributed the day, the night before D-Day, was carried by the Allies onto the beaches of Normandy. But on D-Day itself, Eisenhower carried another note in his pocket. It was in sharp contrast to the, the confident and bold words he had distributed to his soldiers beforehand. In his own pocket, he carried a, a handwritten note composed the night before. It was to be released to the press in the event that the battle was lost. Eisenhower wrote, Our landings have failed, and I have withdrawn the troops. My decision to attack at this time and place was based on the best information available. The troops, the air, and the Navy did all that bravery could do. If any blame or fault attaches to this attempt, it is mine alone. The commander willing to take blame for the failure. No, we give thanks. This, this note was never released to the press. The invasion was a success. The Allies went on to victory against the German war machine. Jesus, in his entry into Jerusalem, comes willing to bear blame. Not blame for his own failure, for he knows he will be successful. Jesus comes to bear the blame of, of his people, of his nation, for their sins, their transgressions, their brokenness. Jesus comes knowing that, that storming this, this kingdom, fighting against the, the powers of sin and the devil, defeating death itself will cost him his own life. And so his public entry here offers little sign of success. He rides in as a, as a victorious king and no one cares. He enters the temple to clear out the, the money changers and they set up their booths the next day. The city leaders plot for his death. But his death is our victory. Jesus, the royal Messiah, has come. The king to give his life as a ransom for us. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we, we think of the, the power of the gospel and ask, Lord, that you would use the gospel to transform our hearts. That you would let us see that, that in our desperation we need a, a Savior who is holy and righteous, a King who will come, who has come, to give his life for us. And Lord, we thank you that even in his death, Jesus gained victory, that he paid the penalty for our sins. Lord, we thank you that as this gospel reaches its conclusion, that we find Jesus not in the tomb, but raised from the dead. Jesus, our King, now ascended into heaven, reigning as the Lord and Savior of the universe. And so, Lord, give us a boldness to, to take this gospel to the nations. Lord, let us be be fervent and urgent in our prayers, our private prayers, our public prayers, that your gospel would go forth. 
Lord, we rejoice that Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is our King. Jesus is our Messiah. As we pray in the name of Jesus the Christ, amen.